Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My new novel, Limelight, a story of sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem, is available nationwide. If you want to listen to it, Natalie Simpson, star of Outlander, reads it brilliantly on audiobook. If you'd like a signed, personalised hardback, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop and they deliver all over the UK. If you're listening on Monday the 19th of June, I'm going to be at Harbour Books in Whitstable tomorrow with podcast alumnus Catherine May. There might be tickets still available, drop the bookshop a line and they should be able to squeeze you in. And I'm at Waterstones, Cambridge on June the 28th with another friend of the podcast, Lucy Vine. Now, on to today's guest. Andrew Hunter Murray is a very talented man. He's a best-selling author, QI elf, host of No Such Thing as a Fish and an ostentatious graduate. His brilliant new novel, The Sanctuary, is a taut, elegant dystopian thriller. So I was surprised and delighted when Andrew revealed himself to be a fellow Persephone addict, sorry, subscriber, and also a Dorothy Whipple fanboy. We also talked about rare editions, Douglas Adams, and whether it's possible to choose a favourite Jane Austen novel. So, Andrew, I'd like to start by asking you about dystopias. You obviously know your way around a chilling and enthralling dystopia. Did you grow up seeking those stories out or are there any that you've read that you're a fan of? I think I probably grew up seeking them out. I think there's a, there's there's something very appealing about a dystopia. I mean, not every single book, but, you know, there's something very nice about a crumbling, ruined place. And, I, you know, there are lots of wonderful poems about that. And, yeah, I grew up with all sorts of authors like um, like John Wyndham and, and, you know, the kind of the 50s mob uh, who, who really specialised in that kind of thing. Um, and there is something pleasing. There's a very nice German saying which goes something like, um, "More beautiful than an than a beautiful thing are the ruins of a beautiful thing." And that <laughs> it's real nineteenth century romanticism stuff. But uh, I think everyone can kind of empathise with that. You know, there is something magnificent about you know a ruined castle or whatever it is. And so I think I think the appeal for dystopias is um, it's a safe look over the precipice, and that that's why they they keep on appealing. Um, even in times when the precipice actually feels quite close, uh, which is why they were so popular when the atomic bomb had been first developed, I think that's what people like about them. And I think it's really interesting that you mentioned John Wyndham and those stories that we can go back and read now. Mm. 
and think, oh gosh, what they were dreading is probably not unlike what we are dreading. You know, there is nothing new under the sun. I've just read um, Coming Up for Air by George Orwell, which is right before the outbreak of the Second World War. And um, yeah, I think, ah, in the last sort of 90 odd years, you know, we are exactly as class obsessed and neurotic and obsessed with small things while feeling as though we should be obsessed with bigger things yeah absolutely as we ever were and i think there's a i think there's a funny thing i mean if you look back at people who lived through the second world war they saw cities that they lived in destroyed you know or or or, or seriously damaged by actual bombing raids by 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 people who were trying to kill them people all over europe had that experience um and all over the world had that experience and you know people people of my parents generation remember rationing um, they they remember having ration cards, and I think we are always focused on the idea that everything might go wrong, um, and it's it's quite a, it's quite an extreme reaction because you know more what, what's always more likely is that <laughs> we will we will get our way out of the pickle we have just got ourselves into with the last thing we invent by using the next thing we invent. It's, it's, it's most of human history has been that. And obviously the stakes feel a huge amount higher now with climate change and with, you know, with, with all these other threats that we have. Um, but that has broadly, broadly been our progress so far. And so you might not think it from the two books I've published so far. I am an optimist about, about humanity and about our amazing abilities and you know all of that um that really doesn't come across in in in, um the the published ahm canon well i think a pickle is a delightful way of (laughs) and i was thinking about your creativity and inventiveness and skill as a world builder a a builder of destroyed destroyable worlds and I suppose I'm curious about whether you think there's any connection at all with comedy and you might not in terms of establishing very vivid worlds very quickly and taking people with you oh what a what a great question You've picked up on the thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is the sanctuary. The, the the new book is is I would say the most serious book maybe that I'll ever write. You know, I'm, and I mean everything else in my career has an element of the comic to it. You know, I, I write for Private Eye, and I've worked at, I worked at QI for a long time, and I still do the, the QI podcast. In terms of the link between the two, I think what both have in common is an ability to evoke quickly with a few details, and that's really core to any creative endeavor if you find exactly the right detail um you can make any environment either very funny or or very uh, evocative and, and dystopian and um yeah so sometimes it's a matter of just thinking of lots of different options and whittling down or spending a good long while thinking um before you commit something to the page um because i come from a, an improvising tradition in comedy you normally don't get a chance to go back and correct yourself uh, which is why it's so nice writing a book where you can you can plan for months you don't have to commit anything to the page until you're good and ready and that's that's a real uh, treat it doesn't sound like it but uh, as long as you don't spend you know 10 years planning one page then yeah it's, it's it's a joy to do that and is that how you work because when i i write i often get it i waste thousands of words <laughs> and i can't go and i've tried to plan a little bit more every time but i often do have to to write it wrong to write it at all but do you really work out exactly where the beats of the story fall and what the universe looks like before you actually yeah write prose? i did i have had a crack at writing from the hip and it went awfully, <laughs> and uh, I got I got thirty thousand words in. A lot of authors seem to say it's thirty thousand words, and then 
you find yourself in a jam and you can't do as opposed to a pickle um you find yourself really <laughs> stuck and you think oh god I can't, I can't go any further i don't i don't see my way out of this so i did thirty thousand words for my my first book the last day got stuck completely took a break paused worked everything out this time and started again um because i think that the the creativity comes from the way you get through each individual scene and the way you write and the details you notice along the way so even though i know what is going to happen broadly in a scene and what what plot moves might have to happen i've no idea how they're going to happen until i'm writing so there's there's a there's a healthy dose of creativity in both parts i think it'd be really boring to plan everything to the last detail because then you're just having to type out um your own novel which you've already worked out all of um but i also can't cope with writing writing everything fresh and just putting i think it was even more who said um he had the ability when he was young to just put a load of characters on a chessboard and see what happened you know see where they went really uh i can't do that either so that nice thing in the middle where you've got a a broad you've got a destination and you've got several possible routes there well you've got one route there but you can choose what you notice along the way that's fun i'd love to come back to ask you about evelyn moore if he's someone that you enjoy reading oh, yes. uh but, oh, but oh, not, well, now. not now not now no 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> you've got now. your route map um but you talked about um, improvising. Yeah. Uh, you see, this is it. I am. Um, I don't know what I'm doing with my chess pieces. Obviously, I would feel terrible if I didn't ask you about ostentatious hey, and yeah. Jane Austen. Yeah. <laughs> so I was a member of a. <laughs> it makes it sound like I'm a recovering member of. I until this January, I was in uh, Ostentatious, which is an improvised Jane Austen comedy show. And the conceit is that Jane Austen didn't write six novels; um, she wrote seven or eight hundred hugely exciting and we then uh, perform restore these lost works to the public the audience and we get a title at the start of each show and then we just go from there um so i've only just stepped back from it so i'm still really messing it but uh it's such a fun show to do and a lot of us are real austin heads in the group and it's um yeah it's a complete joy so how did you kind of first encounter her novels at school uh we had a very good english teacher who's probably the reason i studied English at uni and then you know got me into this whole thing uh and he uh he asked us all to read Emma and that well, it was one of the books that term and um weirdly it's my least favorite of Austin's novels I don't know why don't get me wrong still love it but <laughs> it's the one I would take last to the desert island I feel like Emma is always a favorite or a least favorite oh, no one feels indifferently about no. it I mean, it's all the thing is, every page of Austin is funny and good and contains brilliant stuff. Maybe it's the character of Emma herself. She's just a bit, mm. she's a bit Marmite for a lot of people. But anyway, so then, and then, you know, enjoyed Emma and then read uh, lots more Austin at university because I did English and you get to pick a special author. You do a whole term on one author. Uh, and I picked Austin and was one of about three boys, I think, in the whole like, very large lecture theatre of, of, of students wanting to study Austin, um, which is a shame. I think m- more men should read Austin. I'm a big advocate of that. I mean, so many books are kind of divided arbitrarily on lines of what what people think they should be reading or what, what publishers think readers should like in particular categories. Uh, I mean, there's so much humanity in all of Jane Austen that it's, it's a crying oh, the, shame. The thrill of discovering she's funny yeah. and that funniness doesn't stop thing I was trying to work out the sort of I guess like the mechanics of Pride and Prejudice and the A plot and the B plot and how the story is woven and thinking oh but it all comes from characters really there's nothing very much external that's driving everyone (laughs) everyone's driving themselves and driving each other yeah absolutely yeah and the other thing I love about the way Austin's characters 
operate I, I think of it as a kind of there's a kind of um, solid core of two or three people always the heroine and one or two others who are fully human and fully fleshed out and truly the most psychologically real in the whole book and then you're allowed a little bit of eccentricity in the characters around them like Mrs. Bennet and then you get to people like the Reverend Collins or Lady Catherine de Bourgh and they're allowed to be fully bananas uh, <laughs> within Austen's particular world and that's great fun because it allows you you can step the comedy up to heights of absurdity or you can step it back down and still have the very human comedy that you know Lizzie and Darcy have and that's that's such a treat and I think that's why it works as ostentatious on stage is because we're operating in Austin's world and and that's how it functions you know uh, you've got Miss Bates but you've also got Mr Knightley you know they they're very different in levels of s- kind of silliness and their amount of stage time is is rationed out accordingly yeah it's it, i mean she's a genius obviously Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, it's like newsflash. Austin's pretty good. Yeah. I feel like this is a, always a reductive question, but do you have a favourite? It's either Pride and Prejudice or Persuasion. Pride and Prejudice. I thought you're allowed to to abbreviate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, no, the, the amount right I say it, I, you know, it's just a time saving device. I would waste hours a day if I had to say Pride and Prejudice out, you know, fully every time. So, yeah. <laughs> That is fair enough. I'd love to ask you about other funny books that you've enjoyed. Was there a particular book that was the first that you picked up as a young reader and thought, oh, this is allowed, you can be funny in books? I think like a lot of readers, it was The Hitchhiker's Guide. My parents have an incredibly ancient edition, which is a really, really cheap paperback, completely falling apart, paper very yellow, tiny font. And I read that and was blown away. And I, I was must have been about seven. And I couldn't believe couldn't believe how good it was. Didn't get half the jokes, but I knew they were funny somehow, even if I didn't understand why. Yeah, that was the, I think that was the gateway. Gosh, because I think, you know, it's a book that so many of us come to when we are quite young, but yeah. seven is, I think, a very <laughs> early time <laughs> I, to discover that. I hope that. I'm not massaging it, yeah. Uh, was it the first book you read that felt like it was for adults, or had you been... Ooh. reading Proust for many years yeah I mean obviously you know I remember there were these th- collections of stories for you know there were the short stories for children who are seven and over or st- stories for children who are eight and over I felt this kind of insane pride if I was eight and I read the st- stories for children who were nine and over I thought yeah I'm, I'm <laughs> puffin ones and they had the number on the yeah. front and lots of sort of beautiful tiny illustrations of other things kind of woven around yeah. the number yeah I think it was those I remember yeah. those and so that was that was definitely encouraging competitive reading which probably mm. didn't do any harm you know I had a few kind of I had a, I definitely had a crack at a few that I was I was too young for um didn't get on with one flew over the cuckoo's nest at the age of about 13 or 14 two two out there couldn't couldn't hack it and then went back later and loved it so yeah, I love that when you you know you saddle up, you're sort of you're thrown <laughs> off by the book, and you're like, no, I will. <laughs> the time will come. I think it's a really comforting thing about life to know that I think like that we're not ready for the books, but they will wait for us, and they will be ready for yeah, us. Yeah, I had that with Middlemarch actually. You know, you hear it's the the great, and you and you and I, I had a crack at it when I was a student, when I had all the time in the world. Your job is just to read read novels and think about them and write about them, and I I couldn't get it, couldn't get into it. I thought I got 200 pages in. I've really I put a bit, a bit of time in and it's about, I don't know, that's about a quarter of the way in um, and still was getting absolutely nothing from it. And then I read it in lockdown and, you know, I had the full conversion experience and couldn't believe how good it was. Oh, wow, because I've never read it and I have always been, you know, daunted by it. And thought, oh, one day. It is daunting. I talked about this on the podcast <laughs> before, but after having the fear, I read Bleak House this winter. Ooh. 
which made me feel like I could probably read Middlemarch. Yeah, how's that? How's Bleak House? Do it the Good? same way. Um, <laughs> parts are really compelling. Okay. And again, Dickens is, you forget, he can be really, really funny. Um, mm. I did struggle with um, Esther, the heroine, okay. which I don't think is her fault. I think it's his fault. I think Dickens right. didn't do a brilliant job. And the way he writes about sort of the female friendship it's a little bit creepy and Esther is just too good. And I say that right. as a Fanny Price apologist. I okay, just... big fan of Fanny Price. Can I just say, like Fanny Price. Thank yeah, you. I'm, 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 and Mansfield Park is probably is probably next on the list after my first two fave Austins. It's really good. It's, it's, I mean, it is quite long, Mansfield Park, but I do think it's very good. No, I've never tackled Bleak House. I've had two goes at Moby Dick and fallen back both times. Uh, same with Don Quixote. Um, yeah, so there are plenty, plenty of um, biggies out there still waiting to be knocked off. But that's fun. I like, I like having them kind of in the waiting room. I think you're right, and there will be times, you know, lockdown. Oh God, being... there won't be more lockdowns, please. No, I'm sure not that, not that. Longers. Good yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good things will happen. Good reasons to mm. tackle the the big giant hospitalizations. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Comas. No, that doesn't work. How do you choose what you're going to read next? It's a real mishmash. I try, I try and knock off a couple of biggies a year. And um, I'm a subscriber to uh, a thing called Persephone Books, which is great. They do a lot of sort of mid-century novels by mostly women writers who've mostly been undeservedly forgotten. Um, and if, if you sign up for a six months in advance, they send you one a month. And that kind of sets a bit of your reading because you know, oh, there's another Persephone arriving this month. Great. That's really nice. Always, always thrilled to hear a nice mention for Persephone yeah, books great. on the podcast because I adore them. Yeah. And I don't subscribe, but I should. But um, my big reading discovery of last year was Dorothy Whipple, who I am now obsessed with. I don't yeah. know if she um, her biography might have been a subscriber edition. It might be called Late in the Day, oh, okay. that's Hadley. But she writes quite moralistic, but hugely entertaining. They are sort of of their time, but also very, very fresh. There's a, a, a lightness to them. And they're not, you know, rolling around funny, but they are funny. My favourite is probably called High Wages. And it's about Jane, who needs to move out and gets a job in a drapers and lives just outside Manchester and ends up sort of running a retail empire. It's brilliant, brilliant fun. And her book, Random Commentary, Dorothy Whipple's book, which is a collection of her journals, I guess. It's the best book about writing I've ever read. And I think it goes up until the end of the first, no, sorry, end of the Second World War. Okay. and it's all very like, oh, it's not fair. I keep being interrupted. People keep coming in for tea. When am I going to write? And then I've had three days by myself and I've not written a word. And the sort of the enormous, yeah. the highs and lows. And, you know, some of the books are made into quite big films. Yeah. The last of hers I read was um, They Knew Mr. Knight, which is about this yes! family who are ordinary. They're, they're slightly on the on a downward slope, but they're, 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 they're pretty kind of prosperous middle-class people, you know. And then they come into contact with a kind of mysterious wealthy local neighbour called Mr Knight um, and the dad of the family gets more and more involved in him and a hero worships him and can't believe what a great guy he is and and accidentally gets sucked into this whirlpool of, of big wealth and um, and not fully understanding what's going on and obviously there's a reckoning coming but just because you can see it coming doesn't mean it's, it's any less Im- powerful when it does come it's, it's a brilliant book there's something about her interiors that really reminds me of Anita Bruckner and I'm thinking about all those parts of the book where they go to see 
the Knight family and yeah. they've got that beautiful house, but everything just feels a little bit overstuffed and heavy and overheated yeah. and everything's a bit overripe and sticky and there's just too much and they're entranced by it, but there's no flow of life there. Yeah. It's very it's very Robert Maxwelly as well. Yeah. Well, I'm Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm very I, I mean as in the sanctuary, I'm quite I'm very interested in the rich and <laughs> how they how they present themselves and how and how they appear in novels you know it's it's fascinating seeing characters who are you get a sense the author is saying too wealthy because most authors are not billionaires they're always presented from outside and it's it's very interesting the way authors show you the interiors or the exteriors of the wealthy and and try and get under their skins and find out what they mean but, i mean like the rest of the world i love succession and right. i love the detail that the writers have I think, a sort of a wealth advisor. Just yeah. little things like, well, of course, none of them own coats because why on earth would they need to be outside? Yeah. And, you know, I think in novels as well, we're so preoccupied with wealth at the moment. And yeah. that's sort of a theme that kind of that comes and goes. And I think, you know, you're right. how could you write about that if you'd been really in it and among it and not sort of ask questions about it? Oh, have you read... Um, Oh, I think it's called Angel by Elizabeth Taylor. I don't think I have, no. It's about a teenage novelist who becomes a superstar, but she is a nightmare. She is incredibly vulnerable and sort of hugely lovable, but not very likable. <laughs> and she becomes very rich. Um, and it's about how she sort of spends her money on various follies right. while sort of trying to... Because in her head, because it all happened for her when she was about 17 or 18, that's sort of her idea of you know what it's like to be... A billionaire yeah. has kind of frozen. And I think you do sort of see that, you know, in real life as well with celebrities and certain things that sort of you've always dreamed about that seem very fancy, even though they don't quite work. I'm trying to think of yeah, well, so there's, a good example. Okay, so the, the, the example of, he's, he's a bit less in the news these days, um, but the Andrew Tate thing. Mm. Anyone over the age of about, I don't know, 29, looks at Andrew Tate and thinks, God, this is embarrassing how you know but there is a kind of supercar and supermodel blah 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 aspiration caviar cigar guns la 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 you know like most most people of my of my age will will think jeez this is tragic but when you're 15 you don't think like that yeah you know you do think oh wow he's great and so so that's where a lot of the problem comes from yeah Although I don't think anyone's tried to write him into a novel yet. Well, I heard someone once say that Ferris Bueller, it is a nerd's idea of what popularity looks and feels like. Gosh, that's interesting. Because I, I love that film. I think I probably am the nerd that they're talking about when they're describing that. I, I saw it really late. I saw it when I was in my 20s. So I, I didn't see it when I was a teenager, but it would have had its maximum impact on me. But yeah, it is. You're right. It is a pretty it's kind of rudimentary like fantasy and so charming. Are there any books like that where you feel as though everyone sort of experienced them in a formative, at a formative time as part of the fabric of them and you sort of, you read them late. I mean, I'm making air quotes. You can never really read a book late, but you know, where you think, oh, is this... Um... Yeah. Like I think about that with, you know, say the Beats and Kerouac and reading them when I was at an impressionable age right. and thinking, this is amazing. But had I read them after I was 25... I think I'd be like, yeah. What is this? I bet there are all What's sorts like that. So I've never really read. I don't think I've read any Kerouac actually. But I, I bet, I bet I wouldn't quite understand 
the 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 thrill of it now um i mean the, a big example would be dh lawrence i guess reading mm. lady chatterley now probably doesn't have the the kick that's partly because society's changed but you know even as a teenager i think i had to reread quite a lot of um lady chatterley's life right. are they they're having sex or what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> it's so dense. yeah 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 exactly yeah i adore jilly cooper mm. and i binged those books when i was a teenager and i love them and reread them still but i know people who've read them after turning 30 who's who have struggled a bit with the kind of unreconstructed sexism and the the Tory politics yeah. and the way that oh, I mean Jilly is a just a divine and wonderful human being and one of the kindest and loveliest people and I will love those books forever Bishambia <laughs> her uh, her feminism or her the way she depicts feminists it's a bit viz right well I, I sort of hairy legged shouty people imagine if she got a, a kind of um like good old-fashioned roll dull rewrite like the kind that's been very people have been very worried about recently mm. there would be nothing left i imagine the, the like the books would all be about 30 pages long if they got if they got a <laughs> thorough publisher's treatment i guess i don't know how i feel about that you know i want everyone to be able to read books in a way where they feel seen and shown and certainly I, we had uh, Mallory Blackman on this podcast mm. And she told me that it wasn't until she was 22 and there was a bookshop in London that mostly sold the work of black writers. Mm. And she'd just only really been able to read books about white people. And she was a a voracious reader and, you know, had a difficult time growing up and, you know, at home and books were everything for her. And it was difficult to hear. I don't believe anyone should read a book and feel excluded by that whatever that looks and feels like but then I don't know that the answer is going back and fixing things I think well let's just write more yeah I, I think I think that's probably where I come in on it I mean I have almost nothing relevant to say here as a middle-class white bloke you know no, like, my opinion is really not very <laughs> at all important to this debate I think I feel a bit twitchy about um going back and and sanitizing works that unwittingly were representations of an uglier time so there's a great actually it's another persephone uh it's called miss Pettigrew lives for a day right it's this charming it's a gorgeous book it's about this it's 24 hours in the life of this kind of quiet downtrodden woman who who stumbles into a new world and has a whirlwind and it's, it's literally all in 24 hours it's like a proto version of the jack bauer tv show except it's lovely um and you know it's a comic fantasy andrew i could not love you more for comparing <laughs> miss Pettigrew lives for a day with 24 that's brilliant <laughs> um but okay so it's this amazing book right and it's got but it's got this one moment of clunking thumping anti-semitism in it and it's it's like a character opens the door and it's something like he had the you know he had the dark um dark menacing features of a jew mm. and you you go what and you look back at when this was published and you realize it was published in 1938 and you think wow and that's being published in england in 1938 so it it kind of reminds you of the time in which it was written and what was acceptable mm. and unacceptable. I don't think there would have been a huge discussion with um, with the author about, you know, should you include that line? Should you not? So I think that is telling us something. Weirdly, I think that is a reason for kind of keeping the text as it is, the kind of retain and explain model. Um, where it comes into conflict with enormous... Like, that, that's one book by one author who was writing in the 30s. Mm. When it comes into contact with the big global megacorp, like the Dahl estate or the mm. Fleming estate or whatever... Um, or the Blighton estate, you know, all of these authors are 
as far as their publishers are concerned, still huge going concerns. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, publishers have been editing Blyton and Christie's works since the 60s um, and, and, you know, tweaking them in that sense. So, yeah, that's a, that's a funny one. I mean, you'd probably be pretty shocked if you read a lot of original Blyton or Christie today. Um, is that a reason to let it go and, and to write new things and read new things? Probably, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Andrew soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Seven X's by Lucy Vine. Lucy is my friend and I'm a huge fan of her writing. This takes a classic premise, who is the one who got away, and takes it for a very smart spin as Esther tries to retrace her romantic path. It's slick, smart and lovable, the most fun summer read, but with depth and stealth wisdom too. If you love Lucy like I do, tickets are available for our Cambridge Waterstones event in a couple of weeks. And we'll also be hanging out with another podcast alumnus, Lindsay Kelk, at a July event. Details to be announced. Now, back to Andrew. I love this idea of subscribing as well, of having your, just just knowing what you're going to read. Because I do find it hard to kind of to choose and to, to decide. Do you try to be varied in your reading habits? Yeah, I do. I read a lot of, I read a lot of, almost all fiction I read a lot of non-fiction for my work um in, in various ways so I feel like I've got that covered um in my working life and that that means the rest of time is free for fiction um I do try and get a range of periods and and genres in I'm a I'm an anti-genreist I, I I don't like <laughs> I don't like being told you like this therefore you're going to read 37 more things like it now um I think that's that's a mad way of proceeding but it completely varies it's recommendations from friends or I've just joined a book club for the first time which is great fun my friends and I've set one up and so there you're reading on oh. recommendations and that again goes between Sylvia Plath and something that was published last year so it, it it's a it's a range what are you reading at the moment in your book club we are reading the a gentleman in Moscow by Amor Towles Ooh, yeah former Former guest of the podcast. Get out of here. We went to his place. He's got a fabulous apartment in Gramercy Park. I and bet he um, has. a lot of um, Ian Fleming first editions. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what happens when you do something sensible, like work in finance for 20 years before mm. becoming a novelist. That's the, uh, that's the way to do it. Yeah. I find first edition buying fascinating as a... I, don't, I, don't, I can't... I, yeah, weirdly, I... 
I don't think if you gave me the tra- I d- actually I did see a first edition of Emma recently that was pretty exciting at, at someone's house who oh at someone's was- house yeah 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 like <laughs> the Queen's house <laughs> I was at the Queen's house and um no it was just a friend who I think it, maybe it wasn't a first first it, it was a very early edition and it was in three volumes you know that because <gasps> they published them like that and that was yeah it was a thrill that's an I can I can understand it. I, I, maybe it's the kind of thing I don't want to get into because I know I'd I'd, I'd lose myself to it. See where it ends. Yeah, it's in, it ends with me living in my car, but with a first edition <laughs> of The Great Gatsby or whatever. Yeah, a truck. Well, I like um, I give them as gifts, and I've been lucky enough to get them as gifts, but mm. nothing sort of. Um, I've got a uh, Nora Ephron essay collection in a first edition that I think she signed and. Nice. Um, a friend was very excited to see it and I had to rescue it because he was reading it and he had a bottle of beer that he was sort of resting on the pages. <laughs> like, I'm not being funny, but could you please not do that? <laughs> oh, God. oh, God. Yeah, that's agonising. Um, so, yeah, nothing but heartache. Don't go there. <laughs> yeah. What yeah, would yeah. you love a first edition of if I could... I mean, what I'd love to do, which I can't do, is give you the gift. Thank you for being on the podcast. <laughs> so I'm going to get you the hypothetical first edition of anything you like. Um I'll tell you what, I'll go, and, I'll, I'll go and get something off my shelf now if you give me two seconds. Of course. Right. Uh, recently, someone uh, was looking for a present for me and they found a first edition of Douglas Adams' So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that is the one where, where Arthur Dent falls in love and it's, it's wonderful. And... and my friend, my friend knows what a big Douglas Adams fan I am. He was waiting and waiting for a signed first edition of So Long and Thanks for All the Fish to come up on eBay. And he's a, he's a big eBay fan. Oh, no, hang on. Sorry, it's a second. Oh, no, never mind. Um, but is it a the first one... paperback edition? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It's a first paperback edition. You're absolutely right. Um, and the one he found was, is dedicated to Andrew. A better man's. Oh my goodness! That's and he'd been incredible. waiting for years for any for any signed so long and thanks for all the fish to come up, and that was um, that's pretty special. So I think that's the one I'd go for, and I, I've already got it, which is which is lovely. And it's a lovely, lovely thing to have. I love yeah. those old Pan Mac editions as well. Yeah, that, is gorgeous. that seventies? That was or eighties? This is eighty five. It was published. Yeah, nineteen eighty five. It's it's beautiful. Yeah. Oh. Year so, of mine was born. That's it. <laughs> oh, I'm delighted that yeah. you that you have that. Mission accomplished. I wanted to ask you about the nonfiction. Are there any books that you've had to read for work and then gone out and told all your friends you must read this? It's brilliant. Is there anything Ooh. that's been a real pleasure? We have quite a lot of authors on no such thing as a fish, and um, one author we had on a year or two ago um, is Mary Roach, and she writes books which are on scientific subjects. They're about a field of human experience, and she does a lot of amazing first-hand research. Um, so there's um, Stiff, which is all about what happens to our bodies after we die. There's Bonk, which is a, the interactions between science and sex. Um, her latest one is about animals and the law and how they collide with each other, and I think it's called uh, Animal, Vegetable, Criminal, um, nice, brilliant. very nice. Yeah, or it might be called the Fuzz over here. I can't remember. There's there are two titles on the either side of the Atlantic. Her books are amazing. They're really good because she she really does the research. I think she had to have sex with her husband inside an MRI machine to do a study of 
some kind of fluid mechanics of sex, and she, and her account of the experience is is very very funny, um, or or with a, an ultrasound scientist present, and it was just so awkward. And she but she puts herself into these amazing situations to um, um, yeah, to get the the stories for her book. She's a brilliant writer. Oh, yeah, she sounds yeah. fantastic. Ah, oh, she's I great. Yeah, think my friend Rowan Pelling. Um, of uh, Perspective magazine. I was going to say formerly yes. of the Erotic Review. And I well, think yes. Paul Rowan um, would like people to maybe not sort of say, oh, that job that you did 10 odd years ago, um, <laughs> still how we're defining you. But I think she, I think she was on her own, but I think she went into an MRI to sort of record like what happens to the brain when you orgasm. And I'm just imagining wow. this um, particular... MRI machine in this sort of team of researchers standing around <laughs> waiting who's gonna who's gonna show up and go in the machine today. <laughs> well, I've, God, you're really you're really casting me back to a, an episode of Fish we did. I think the whole point of the MRI in that case is that you have to keep your head incredibly still. And I think there was someone who, one of the women who did this, I don't think it was Rowan. She had to train herself to have an orgasm, but while not moving her her head a muscle so that the brain scans work. And I think she did it by tying a cat bell to her forehead um oh. so that if there was any possible movement the cat bell would go off and wow. the, yeah. yeah so i mean the things people do for research you know and also, i love that because that how do we get here how do we get science, this? But it's quite diy it's very diy yeah we were talking about evelyn war and 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 gatsby a bit a little <laughs> bit ago how do we get here this is the no such thing as a fish talking. It just goes there. I yeah. love it. It's often what happens on this podcast as well. <laughs> it's a it's a thing of joy. It makes me very happy. But I'm very glad you mentioned Evelyn Waugh again. Let's talk about him. Oh, okay. I mean, as, brilliant. If, as long brilliant, as you want to. Brilliant comic author. I do. Yeah. Incredible. Early ones, amazing. Later ones, when it's all about being a Catholic, not quite for me but a little um, bit more heavy going slightly heavier weather yeah yeah but i did read his uh second world war i think he said third world war um trilogy um he didn't he didn't um the good news is that yeah. he's still alive the bad yeah. news is <laughs> um but the second world war trilogy the sword of honor trilogy which is actually nothing like it, it sounds incredibly grand mm-hmm. and it's about um guy crouchback um, and his just terrible experiences across the whole Second World War. They are amazing. And they're late works, but they're very funny uh, late works. Whereas, um, sorry, did you have a question about what? I feel like I just trampled in and started nope. mouthing off. Oh, That's great. That's okay. great. Let's talk about the Sword of Honor trilogy because I think I was a real fangirl for war when I was a teenager. Me too. Me too as a teenager, yeah. But the early ones, things like mm. um, Vile Bodies and Scoop. Yes. Yeah. I still think is it Decline and Fall? That's the first where, one, yeah. Where he goes to prison yes. and he's about to get married and he sort of yeah. he says there's just a bit of him like all his life just wanted to go to prison and it's actually quite <laughs> relaxing. Um I think still think that's one of the funniest books I've ever read. It is. He's yeah, and there's a real lightness until I think it's the end of the second book that Even More wrote, and just as he was getting to the end of Vile Bodies, I think his wife left him. Um, and it was a really shattering experience for him. And uh, the the book takes an incredibly dark turn um, suddenly. Um, and that kind of infused everything else that War wrote. Yeah. He writes about a, a world. Um, and it's a world that's really alien to us now. But the way he writes his books where characters will kind of refer to characters in other books... Um, there's you get the sense of like a social milieu that's mm. happening and and ongoing and evolving and shifting and he's just zooming in on on a particular bit so 
Amanda Craig writes novels like that. Um, and I started reading books by Simon Raven. Uh, the Rich Pay Late was the oh, first one. And it's really... great. I don't know Simon Raven. It is... They're 60s-ish and they are so, so dated now. I mean... And it's all about people behaving appallingly. And in the 60s, people really behave appallingly. Oh, you know, I bet they're, they did. Like, there's a lot of... I'd say, I, <laughs> they're, quite, they're quite offensive in lots of ways. But um, he's writing the same thing. He's writing about a world with, you know, lots of moving parts. And everyone kind of knows everyone else. And I think those are really interesting series of books. I really like reading those where you think, oh, hang on, you, mm. you were briefly referred to in A Handful of Dust. I know, I know something about you. And, you know, now we're going to get more of your life. Um, I think that's it's amazing if you can do it and get it right. It's really well, with cool. that and reading even more in Nancy Mitford and that that feeling of sort of doors being left ajar, and yeah. you can see it's like being at a a child when your parents are having a dinner party and hearing certain conversations and trying to make sense of them, and you can sort of see things, yeah, you know, just happening kind of in the foreground. And <laughs> I, think, and I was going to say that Nancy Mitford's world feels a lot more frivolous but i don't think that's true or fair when you think about you know they are I, in it and they I, I i think it is i'm not i'm not a mitford fan i'm a I, i'm a anti mitford is a bit strong isn't it but i don't, <laughs> they, they definitely don't speak to me there's something about them that i, I find sets my teeth on edge a bit oh, that's interesting is it the, the creakiness of the family i think it is i think it's the also like our current cultural genuflection towards the Mitfords um I mean it, <laughs> it's unfair to compare them to Boris Johnson's family like they, they've they can't answer back they can't hit back um but the the whole thing of one of them's a Nazi and one of them's a communist and one of them's um you know in society and well they're all in society but there is a sense in which it's a bit like succession you know the 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 play focuses on these incredibly this incredibly small core of people and we're not really interested in the rest of the world. And, you know, in succession, the billionaires get all the best lines. And the same is is, is true in, in Mitford's stuff. And it's, I mean, that's partly because she was writing it, so that's fair enough. But I don't know. I, I, I do want a bit more interaction between the unit and the world. It's kind of like how in Star Wars you get a lot of focus on internal Skywalker family politics when actually <laughs> there's a whole galaxy out here guys you know? <laughs> Obvi- obviously that's the most interesting from a, a dramatic point of view it's why King Lear is about King Lear and his daughters rather mm. than the state of England in that year you know I, like, I get it which brings us back to succession yeah exactly yeah 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 well it's the new novel you know the TV series apparently so I'm in the wrong job yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But that is interesting because given our other sort of points of reference. And again, I think I read The Pursuit of Love when I was 12 and I was supposed to be revising for an exam and I read it yeah, instead. That's, um, that's fertile Mitford territory. And I, I do think. wonder whether it's a bit like, you know, I suppose my YA. If right. I were to come to Mitford at, you know, my 20s or 30s, I would have been like, this is this makes me want to revolt. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think maybe that's what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I came in at that point, yeah. I suppose perhaps it's because um, I've got five younger sisters and we grew up in the countryside. And I, I love that middle of nowhere feeling and that there's a bit where Fanny and Linda are just... They're sort of, I think, in their early teens and they just want to 
fall in love and escape and they have these crushes and Linda yeah. is in love with the Prince of Wales and Fanny's in love with a local <laughs> farmer and they know nothing about these men and they will never meet them but they're just so aware that all their the only way to kind of escape and have any kind of life is to fall in love and their idea of love is very romantic that you know they they don't think of it in terms of you know as was the style at the time like oh, we've got to yeah. it, we've got to be practical about this but what you've identified there that's the bit of the human experience like you love that bit because it sounds like you know about growing up in the countryside in part of a large family of girls and and yeah the i mean when you're when you are young and just starting to find out about you know fancying people you're so clueless You've got no idea, you know, and you've got you've got absolutely no idea what what to say, do, whether you're doing this right, wrong, and that. So so clearly, there's an element of the human experience which she's nailed, and that and is the, the whole point of reading. You know, it's that it's, pin yeah. the tail on the donkey feeling of it as well. Like I've got this enormous <laughs> bundle of feelings, and I've got to pin them on yeah. someone. You'll do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just been um, rereading "Happy All the Time" by Laurie Colwyn, which okay. I adore. I don't know if you've ever come across her but there's a brilliant line where she talked but it's sort of about two men and the women they marry and that's pretty much it and it is incredibly funny but um and one character misty realizes she has fallen in love she identifies it as being a crisis that she says that i sort of all my life i've been waiting for the thing to happen i felt like something in my life is about to start and it hasn't started yet and this is it starting. And she has mm. a kind of grief for the fact that even though something wonderful is happening, she's losing that possibility and that potential of the before. I, I think about this a lot. I think about the, the, yeah, the doors that close as the others open. And it can be the most amazing door in the world that's opening. It depends on your temperament. If you, all of us will think a little bit about the doors that we moved past on the way to the doors we eventually went through. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm writing something not the next book I'm writing, the one after that is 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 largely about that, yeah, because um, it's it's a really really universal element of of all our lives, I think, yeah, yeah. It's funny, I've, like, I'm talking and enthusing a lot about a kind of book that I haven't ended up writing myself. And that's strange, I think. As in, I, you know, I've written kind of too big end of the worldy, mm. you know, and they're they're definitely set in a very potentially fraught environment, and yet the things that I admire and the the bits that I try to fit in there are the human bits within that you know I, I think that's that's the thing that I most love about reading is you find a little piece of human experience whatever that is uh, and and you can make it sing when you're writing and when you're reading and you and or you know whatever you pick up on because you as the writer you can't control what people pick up on if you find a way of writing something that speaks to people you know the small the smaller bit the better then that's that's the dream I think. Well, I suppose that's, that's exactly what Douglas Adams has done, where if you sort of describe any of those books, there's nothing, they don't sound like they're going to be about how human lives are lived. They're, you know, being in space. and yeah. But actually, that's all they're about, is those different human experiences and yeah. how does it feel and what's it like. Hypothetically, are there yeah. any books you've read where yeah. a character has made a big decision and you would, for fun, like to rewrite them with a character making the opposite decision and kind of Gosh, the story becoming different. Great. If you could that's play Choose Your Own question. Adventure with it. Yeah, and I used to read a lot of those books when I was tiny. I loved them. The Citadel of Chaos. 
and all the others. <laughs> they were brilliant. <laughs> I'm now looking at my shelves for inspiration to see which ones. I've just <laughs> my eyes just landed on Dune, but I don't think Dune where where the main character just sort of quietly accepts that his family <laughs> have lost the throne and. <laughs> You know, goes and lives in the desert and occasionally rides one of the worms. I don't think that would be a good. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I would um, love a um, a Pride and Prejudice sequel. I don't yeah, know where Mrs. Which... Bennett turns on Mr. Bennett and says, "You know, <laughs> it's not working, and you're an idiot," and goes off and has a sort of, or comes into weird like obscure family money, and she goes off to yeah bath think, and has a jolly time. I think I researched this once. I think. I think there are a couple of hundred Pride and Prejudice sequels, and they're all so different. So you've got P.D. James, who wrote Death Comes to Pemberley, you know, murder mystery. Um, and then there's one where Elizabeth Darcy, as she would have become, is widowed and then has to defend England from a Napoleonic invasion with the fleet of hot air balloons. There's that one. Um, I don't know about that one. It does sound good. It does sound really good. I've seen the kind of not very good looking 60s cover of it and not quite decided to dip in. Um, okay, so one of the main choices in life is 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 who you end up with or don't. And um, there is a brilliant novel by Edith Wharton called The House of Mirth, which is all about Lily Bart, who's this... She's a young woman. She's, in early 20th century terms, she's well past her prime at the age of about God, something like 34 or something crazy like that. You know, but like she's getting to the point where as a young, very marriageable woman, she has to make a decision. And there's someone, again, it's another anti-Semitism klaxon, there's a financier who's, who's Jewish and described in quite unflattering terms as that, who she decides not to marry. Um, and there are a couple of other people she decides not to marry. And the the, the, the book is about her life where she falls between a few different stools of marriage and and what happens to her with, without giving anything away, I'd loved I'd love to read a story of what happened if she had chosen a different path because yeah it's a brilliant novel uh, and Wharton is again Wharton's kind of very Austeny it's set in a world of extreme wealth but you're seeing the human consequences of and, and the human unhappiness uh, at the at the heart of it and that makes it empathetic no matter how incredibly lavishly wealthy the characters are um you're seeing their their lives and and their pain and that's um that's what we want in fact the wealthier they are the more we want to see their pain (laughs) bring them down i would love to read that would you write it no i don't think i would i'm simultaneously too aware that i'm not as good as wharton and to um i'm a bit of a purist sometimes about as in i I like i like reading the originals by authors and you know and um yeah i think it's tough setting yourself up as you know as writing in the wharton tradition um i'm definitely inspired by lots of people though and you know lots of things i write pretty pretty clearly inspired by um other authors in the same kind of field like Wyndham or like pd james or whoever but uh be frightened of that and also vainly i want to write my own characters you know. I think that's a very good point. <laughs> um, Andrew, I've loved talking to you so much. It's been oh. such a joy to have you on here. Um, very sadly, we must draw this to a close. Before we go, are you allowed to tell us anything about the upcoming books or not? <laughs> Actually, yes, I am, because we are. <laughs> because in the back of the paperback of The Sanctuary, uh, in brackets, available all good bookshops now. Um, there is a little preview of the third book. Do you remember, you know, do you know that thing where you get to the end of a book and then there's a, a first chapter of the, the next one? I, 
that's the first time this has ever happened to me, and I I love that when I read it. I get so excited. So yeah, this is a, it's. I won't say the title because I think the title's going to change. But ah, basically, so the title I've got in here, <laughs> the title that's uh, going to be in sale in bookshops. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. One... I think we've got that in um, my, when my uh, novel Careering just came out in paperback. Yeah. Um, and there's a thing in the back for uh, Limelight, the novel that's coming out in June, um, with the cover, which, again, because I remember that when I was a child reading, and I thought, oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. But I think there is a tiny, tiny, tiny mistake. A missed apostrophe or something, or something plural that shouldn't oh, be plural, no. I can't remember. Pulp it, any- pulp them all. Pulp them all. Um, <laughs> if anyone listening can spot that in their copy of Careering, I will, like, get in touch. I will send you, the first one to spot the mistake, I'll send you a limelight. That's great. <laughs> um, so the, oh, the third one is, and again, I, I like to think that the ending of The Sanctuary is very exciting and gripping, and then suddenly you're going to have a completely different start to a, to a, a, a new novel. Basically, the third book is is going to be about... Uh, a young man uh, and a few of his friends and they they spend their time they live in the empty second homes of the wealthy without their knowledge uh without the owner's knowledge and it's about the wonderful life they have and how it all goes very badly wrong for them somewhere around chapter three that sounds excellent so are they like <laughs> property guardians or are they squatting not even they're uninvited house sitters oh. i think they reject the label squatters but nonetheless it's pretty clearly a description of what they're doing yeah so it's about that and it's it's basically a way of writing about young people and housing but with the body in the middle of it too that sounds fabulous um <laughs> i'm really excited about that and uh, this is one of the best books this we've ever had i've got so much reading to do i'm so excited i know i've got a lot i've got a lot of a lot of hot tips here i'm very excited Going thank to go you so much for having world me. of whipple um yeah. thank you for coming on um i've absolutely loved it huge thanks to andrew the sanctuary is published by penguin and out now your book is produced by dale shaw for new alaska and hosted by acast you can find all the books that Andrew mentioned at acast.com slash booked and you can see a selection at bookshop.org. You can find us and follow us on social media at whybooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. We really, really appreciate it. If you haven't done it yet, it's a brilliant way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. Finally, I leave you with this from Dorothy Parker. I don't want to review books anymore. It cuts in too much on my reading. See you next time. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.